0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Melbourne is the fastest growing city in Australia and by 2050 our population is set to double. We can accommodate over 7 million people in Melbourne without compromising the best bits about our city, but we have a choice to make according to our next guest. Rob Adams um, knows quite a bit about city planning. He's the Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne and a member of the Cities of the Future Council at the World Economic Forum and in an essay in the Griffith Review called The Tale of Two Cities he sets out how Melbourne can grow and stay livable, and it's really great to have you on triple r rob and um i suppose it's good maybe we can sort of set up before we get into the details about the kind the two different cities you think that we might become over the next 35 years
2: thanks for inviting me um that we've got two cities and, and really I think uh, when we talk about our cities today, we're constantly hearing an infrastructure problem and I'll come back to this, we haven't got an int- infrastructure problem, we've actually got a timing problem, we're not utilising our infrastructure to the full extent. So with that in mind, if you take one city, which is the expanding city, business as usual, where we just carry on pushing out into green fields, we're never going to catch up. Um, we haven't got the time or the money. If you think about the simple equation, to double your population within 30 years means you've got to build enough urban capacity in 30 years as that that you've built in close to 200 years. So, it's not going to happen. But the reverse city is one that says, well, let's not expand. Let's contain our boundaries. And there are cities around the world doing this, Vancouver being one of the leading ones. It's actually coming back in rather than expanding. And If you do that, then you have a chance of getting more out of your existing infrastructure, and the burden on infrastructure reduces dramatically. In fact, the estimate for Melbourne would be that you would save $440 billion in infrastructure over that 50-year period. So think about that as an investment back in the infrastructure we need. and. We're starting to see the symptoms of this expanding city. We're seeing um, family violence. We're seeing long commute times where people are spending an hour and a half of their day commuting. So that's three hours out of a day that's not productive um, if they're in a car. And, uh, you know, obesity people sitting in cars. There's also this myth that living in, art, in outer suburbia is healthy. Well, Lancet has just come out and actually said you're more likely to get a heart attack if you live in outer suburbia than if you live in the inner city because you're walking less and, and you're possibly sedentary for greater periods of time. So the symptoms are there, uh, and we've got a choice, and that choice, if we make it now, and it's a very simple choice of saying, let's stop expanding, in over 30 years incrementally we can improve the infrastructure so people actually have the quality of life that you experience in the, the inner city at the moment.
3: And you write in your essay that uh, 4 million new uh, potential new arrivals in, in Melbourne could be accommodated uh, in buildings of medium density on less than a tenth of the metropolitan metropolitan era, area in Melbourne. What sort of areas are there around that would be sort of most amenable, I suppose, to accommodating that number of people, essentially double the city's population? Right.
2: That, that figure came out of a study we did a few years ago called Transforming Australian Cities and what it did is it looked at um, in Melbourne's case, all the land parcels within the whole metro area and said, if you want to get more out of your existing infrastructure, then let's look along uh, around railway stations, along uh, transit routes, be they bus or tram, uh, on brownfield sites. And we looked at that capacity and actually found that on 7.5% of the land area, if you went no higher than you know five to eight storeys and in many cases lower than that, you could accommodate... Uh, all that population, and you'd be putting it where the infrastructure already exists. So right outside your front door here, Triple R, I took a photograph uh, five years ago and said, "Why wouldn't you have apartment buildings along this tram route?" 109, one of the best tram routes in, in town, you know, divided, separated, people get into town quickly. Riding down here today on my bike, there it is, it's all happening. So that population is being absorbed and it's not compromising the suburban areas. You know, there's this uh, myth that it's, you know, it's either all density or, or nothing. Uh, basically, if you on the properties facing the tram lines or around the railway stations on brownfield sites, suburbia can be left as it is. In fact, it'll become the location for urban forests, Water, uh, city as a catchment, capture the water, solar voltaics. It'll become better suburbia, and it'll be better connected to the facilities that people living in suburbia need. So I think it's a very simple equation. It's just uh, being slightly misconstrued at the moment, in my view.
1: And it's interesting, too, because when we talk about the idea of containing the urban growth boundary, which keeps moving all the time we contain it and then yep. we we expand it again uh one reason for that that he's put forth quite often is there is affordability and the idea that but to provide affordable housing in places where people can afford to buy uh they're really those that that housing's on the outskirts of our cities and i wonder if we contrast what's happening here with the with the growing urban growth boundary and also in vancouver both melbourne and vancouver have really high housing costs and i wonder how we deal with the affordability and add more people to our
4: city?
2: Sure I think the first thing uh, in looking at that affordability question is we we only tend to look at the house and land package and affordability um, goes far further than that and and in the article I referred to if you're living in uh, outer suburbia beyond uh, you know tram and maybe away from a railway station the likelihood is a family has uh, at least one car maybe two and in many cases three and just times that by $16,000 a year, uh, and then think about, well, if I had twice times 60,000, uh, dollars 34000 and I could repay that against a mortgage, and by the way, I'm not spending three hours of my life sitting in a car, I can actually walk to what I want, so I'm possibly healthier, are we really looking at affordability? And I don't think we are seriously. So I think what's happening now is uh, apartments are being built and, and we can argue about the quality of those. But uh, younger people are starting to make the choice. Um, you know, many young people don't even have driving licences anymore. They're, they're actually making the choice to say, we will live close to where we want to work, um, we'll, we'll live in an apartment, we've got great parks around us uh, and, and we'll, we'll change our lifestyle. And, and that's happening. And uh, I think uh, the reason I don't get pessimistic about all of this is that even without government policy, this is going to happen. Uh, people will make that choice.
1: Yeah, people are trading off the sort of larger house and, and yard for um, smaller scale to be close to what they want to, to be that's doing right. and work and the like. And, and we do know that you know most employment is still within 10K of the CBD. And we've spoken about that a lot on this program. But I wonder with regards to success, and um, you know, we've had lots of conversations conversations um over the over the past couple of years about if you can't see success how are we going to repeat it? And you look at the C B D of Melbourne and say we have had success here. Can you kind of talk about what that success is?
2: Sure. I mean I think um there, there are about five things that go to make up a, a good piece of city. uh are density and I'm not talking huge density, but density is important. Mixed use. Um, accessibility that you need to be able to get around um, a high-quality public realm, we actually live a lot of our life outside of our dwellings. So if you've got a high-quality public realm, the reason people in suburbia maybe, most probably don't work, walk much is because the areas around them are pretty boring. You know, there's nothing much to walk to. And then you, you get um, uh, local character, which is all about building identity around these areas. So over the last 30 years in central Melbourne, we've taken those factors. And we've incrementally built on uh, improved footpaths, street furniture, planted trees, urban forest strategies, brought back a residential population. 650 people living in the CBD is now well over, close, close to 30,000 uh, people living in the CBD. Um, accessibility, we've favoured pedestrians, bikes, trams over cars we've taken 86 hectares of asphalt out of the city in 30 years and turned it into footpaths, open space etc financial success well it used to the rate in the dollar for people who actually own properties in the central city used to be about 13 cents in the dollar back in 96 it's not under four so what you've done is you've got more people meeting the burden, financial burden, of running the city. And the maths is easy. Just, you know, you're dividing more people into the same plus CPI uh, that we've had before, so the tax burden is coming down. What are we seeing? We're seeing increased employment. Uh, We're seeing um, diversity in the central city. We've got new economies uh, emerging. Uh, The city is becoming a lot smarter. We're a university city, although we don't talk about ourselves being a university city. 40% of the central city population are students. Average age is 27. Um, So all of these things in many ways, when people have been away from Melbourne for a while, they come back and say, oh, it's changed. And they actually like the change. Uh, It's got an energy now. Um, People are actually coming out and enjoying it. And I had a discussion with my daughter yesterday about, you know, people using open space. Is it cultural or can we build it? And my view would be that Melbourne uh, has built its culture of using the external environment. Sidewalk cafes that there were two in 80, 1985, they're now over 500. We, we, we expect that now. So we've grown to see the city in a different way and utilise it. We can do that in, at every railway station, in every rural, rural city um, around, you know, Victoria. We've just got to reinvest in those places and make them better places. And in many cases, it's the simple things. Planting trees, better footpaths, you know, just making the place feel valued. And and that sort of changed to the CBD, something that's
3: happened um before I suppose I, I was aware of it. I've grown up in, in Melbourne that was a very vibrant place that had um you know a high density of people actually living there. So that's oh. happened to me and it's kind of the norm for people I suppose of, of my age and sort of the right. mid to late twenties, which is, is fantastic. Um but I kind of I wonder about you talk about business as usual and if we continue along this path of uh forever expanding the, the urban sprawl that um you know it'll cost a lot more money, it'll be a much less livable place. Uh, Melbourne would be a much less livable place, but how much of that is down to the coordination between uh, state governments, between councils around Victoria, kind of all being on the same page in, in turning Melbourne and large cities around Australia into the most livable that they can be? Is, is there enough of that coordination happening at present?
2: I, I don't think there is, and uh, it, it, it's. I don't think anybody's actively trying not to coordinate, but I, I don't think, for instance, until possibly recently, federal governments have realised that the city's driving the economies, um, you know... Two percent, three percent of GDP uh, went into coal mining. Eight percent went into residential development. You know, so the the, the 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 cities have become the financial drivers of nations, and people invest in invest in cities now, and not nations. So, with with that as a, an understanding, you then need to say, well, who choreographs that? who who brings all of those forces together so they, they go forward in a consistent way. And what is emerging is that cities are possibly better at doing that because they do have most aspects of that economy under site on a daily basis. And therefore state governments and federal governments I think need to better recognise, and they are in the UK, uh, There are the city deals now happening where they're pushing money back to local government to actually invest in cities. So um, you need that co- coordination right from the federal level Minister for Cities is a good first step, right down to local government. And uh, the departmental fragmentation that you get at state government and um, federal government is not working in favour of that coordinated approach. You can't think of transport without thinking of land use planning. Uh, you, you can't think of health without thinking of, you know, planning and, and where people live and how they move around. So um, I think we need to have that better linked up system and I think that will help us. Mm. We also need to fundamentally realise that um, if we can't get greater utilisation out of what we've got, we're going to be, we're going to be in fact, spending more money, uh, possibly in the wrong places we've got underutilized assets schools only operate half half of the, the, the day universities half of the year Roads are most probably underutilised for, you know, nine-tenths of the day. Uh, They just have their peak periods. Stormwater drainage is is actually underutilised in most areas. There are areas where it's not. But imagine drawing the NBN through stormwater drainage rather than actually digging holes all around, you know, the the city. You've actually got an asset there as well already. So put in a water tank, water-sensitive urban design, capture the water so you've got less overland flow, and you've already got a duct that you can actually run these other assets in. So we just need to be smart in the way that we use that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So hot seating schools, two, two sessions in a school, what does that mean? Parents have a different time that they could work and flexi time's coming in in most uh, work environments. Um, take the peak off the road. So we know it's school holidays, 10% off the road and the roads work those are very simple timing issues that we can adjust without having to go and build huge pieces of infrastructure
1: i mean these ideas are really compelling i think rob and and i get really excited by them and i think um often think about well who's who's missing out you were saying earlier about people that are living on the outskirts of our cities and the really the additional cost um not just to, to health and and a well-being but also financial cost to living far from from a cbd and i wonder are cities developing so that they're fair and including everybody can we do that
2: well certainly i'd say the australian cities aren't fair at the moment. And um, I don't think a lot of people recognize that because we've sort of grown up with a model of the city and uh, the suburban city. But uh, when that reaches a certain size, you, go, you start to get inequity. And you can see that very graphically if you go to the um, vampire studies done by Griffiths University um, where they compared uh, 2001 and 2006 and showed petrol and mortgage prices. And what you get is this green area in the middle of cities that have you know, ready access and low mortgage prices and all the rest of it. And then you get the fringe that is orange. Now, what that's saying to us is we've got a divided city. Many people have not lived in a divided city. Australians are incredibly privileged in terms of the lifestyle we have. A divided city is started it starts to become symptomatic when you get uh, people in certain areas being disruptive in other areas. And we're starting to see that happen in Melbourne. So if we don't start thinking about that and starting turning it around, and rather than dealing with the the symptoms, deal with the causes, we will see more and more disruption coming from people who feel outside of the system. And uh, they are at the moment increasingly outside of the system. So perpetrating that through bad planning and and a bad understanding of how cities work is really not a great future for Australia.
1: And and what about the role of the City of Melbourne? Because you're, you you really seem to have a much bigger view of of Melbourne um, beyond the boundaries of the of the City of Melbourne. And what is the role that that the city is playing with planning? I suppose across various other councils and and across. Across the state in, in in many respects, with the ideas that you have
2: I think we 're very lucky, uh, being the central city council, where you know that energy is concentrated and, and where our rate base is, is is good and stable, it gives us the opportunity that maybe smaller councils don 't have to look to the future and and test models um, so over the last 30 years we've been trying to lead uh, the change whether it was bringing residential back or um, sustainability through ch2 and uh, urban forests uh, and we now are moving into strategies for smart cities so in many cases i think we can act as um, a laboratory for ideas that then can be utilized across other areas and as, as that information and data becomes more and more transparent as it is, that data can be used by, um, other levels of government. So I'll give you an example. Um, Geelong, um, the, 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 this past mayor of Geelong, um, asked us to go down and just have a look at central Geelong. And they had four to five million to invest. How would we change that? And in one afternoon, you could walk around and you could look at the streets. And you could see where there was too much asphalt, um, where traffic engineers had painted white lines and cross-hatched them, which usually means they don't need that space. And we just went round and and just said, if you dig that up, if you plant trees, if you put medians, if you expand footpaths, you're going to get this much more open space. Uh, It's going to become more pleasant. You're going to have a treed environment. it's actually not difficult. You can go and do it tomorrow. So that comes out of a knowledge because we've done it over a period of time. So we can give confidence and knowledge to governments who might look at it and not quite know where the next step is.
3: And it's a good story to tell when that's often a cheaper option than than investing in you know huge infrastructure or, or forever expanding the city as well. And I mean, you've touched on some areas in which planning uh, affects and impacts on on social equity. Um, is is that understood readily by different levels of government that that planning can have a real impact on on people's lives beyond just how long you have to wait for a train or something like that?
2: Is that really understood? I, th- I think it is um, but uh, I think uh, the in in my view where the breakdown comes is the response is a traditional response rather than uh, an untraditional response so um, you know let's take one aspect uh, child care um, we think of child care as a hundred and twenty place center uh, quite expensive but that's how it pays for itself financially, um, the, the, the parents then have to get to that child care centre because they're going to be more widely distributed. Um, it might not be close to where they work, so there's this anxiety. Uh, what if child care became 10 children um, and 10 serviced officers? Uh, would that mean that uh, the, you know the parents could actually... You know, be located alongside the children? Would the rental from the service offices help pay for the childcare and therefore bring down childcare costs? I don't know, but it's an interesting question to postulate. Mm-hmm. So I think when you talk about social inequity, you need to start thinking about how do we make it easier for everybody to do their daily life? And um, at the moment we're reliant on things like the motor car uh, for the vast majority of our population. The bus in Melbourne is almost not in people's uh, psychology. We just don't think buses. Yet we've got this fantastic network of buses that run over a grid over the whole of Metro Melbourne. It's just that the service isn't good because people don't actually know it's there, don't know how to use it. And there's about
1: two people sitting on a massive bus some of the time. That's right.
2: (laughs) Mm. And and they don't arrive at the station at the right time. They don't link people to where they want to go. So, you know, it's that coordination that would actually help social equity because people would then be able to walk outside the front door and get to where they want to go and know how to do that. Mm. iPhone helps that because with all the apps about getting around Melbourne... Uh, you know, people like me who are always nervous about getting on a bus and ending up somewhere they didn't want to go (laughs) can actually find out now.
1: (laughs) We've kept you way over time. Rob Adams, uh, he is with the City of Melbourne and he's the Director of City Design and really trying to get us to think outside the box with how we can better use uh, infrastructure in our city to accommodate double the population by the middle of the century and uh, a couple of ideas there, freezing our boundary, um, urban growth boundary and making the most of existing infrastructure and also agreeing, really between three levels of government for how we can coordinate lots of ideas and you can read more about it in the um, latest Griffith Review, The Tale of Two Cities, Four Steps to the Future is Rob's uh, essay in that and there's a whole lot of other ideas in that um, edition of Griffith as well. Thank you very much for coming into Triple R. I hope we can get you back sometime.
2: It's a great pleasure.
1: And you are tuned to The Great It is the reading room and then as she does about monthly, Mel Crenenberg, acting editor of The Big Issue, Big Issue, pops by and we talk about writing and reading and it's great to see you mel it's always so lovely to be here and um this morning um jared elson's joining us he's a bookseller writer and interviews editor of kill your darlings and uh, it's been your job jared to pick the book that we're going to talk about today and you've selected jeff dyer's but beautiful a book about jazz
0: that's right um i was just thinking i actually missed the uh, the songs that played at the top of that last bracket which uh would have made a great segue, I suppose. Esperanza Spalding and Robert Glasper, who are two uh, really great, you know, contemporary uh, artists who mm-hmm. operate in the, the jazz kind of idiom, I suppose, um, in various ways. But uh, so that's a that's a great uh, felicitous little segue, I suppose. radio on demand,
3: you can also great. Go I'll go and home and listen, and listen to yeah. them. Um, they're doing
0: shows really soon too, aren't they? As they are. The jazz yeah, festival that's right. next week or something, I think. Um.
1: So, why have you chosen this? I suppose it's a a good opportunity to hear who Jeff Dyer is, a bit of background, because he's written quite a number of books and then and what this one's about.
0: Yeah, he's a really interesting writer, and he's you know he's got a, one of those authors who's got like a really fervent kind of following, I suppose, and anyone who likes and reads Jeff Dyer will probably um, always try to push a Jeff Dyer book into his, the hand of someone who hasn't, <laughs> um, particularly as a bookseller. You know, I'm always... He's one of those authors I always... If you've never read him, you know, there's a Jeff Dyer book for you, because um, something about him is that um, each of his books are, are so distinct. He writes fiction, which uh, is sort of characterised by enormous... Essayistic kind of digressions, and that also kind of blur the line between memoir and fiction. Some of his books, as well, Um, he's one of his most famous, and probably you know one of his one of my 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 two favorite books of his, along with But Beautiful, is a book called um, Out of Sheer Rage, uh, which he it's essentially his kind of psychic chronicle of his utter failure to write what he calls a sober academic analysis of the works of D.H. Lawrence. Um, So yeah and Dyer's so great on all of the kind of petty frustrations of everyday life and things like that so this comes raging to the fore in that in the book Out of Sheer Rage. Um, he winds up moving all to all these different places around the world with his partner thinking okay this is where Dyer wrote this book. I'm sorry where, um, where Lawrence wrote this book. Maybe if I'm there that'll kind of put me closer to you know the spiritual home of, of this work in particular and then he gets there and he's like ah oh, shit this is not helping at all and God look at this awful view out my friggin window like I can't write a book here and so he moves somewhere else and uh, you know I've course it winds up with him uh with his partner on a nudist beach um you know of course and yeah so it's (laughs) it's not really your typical kind of um literary you know critical analysis or literary biography however it's kind of both of those things as well as being something much bigger and um you know i think a lot a lot more interesting than um and you learn a a heck of a lot about um about lawrence and his work along the way and so how did you come
3: (laughs) to um to but Beautiful, a book about jazz. Had you read Jeff Dyer beforehand, or
0: yeah, I've, I first read this book a few, um, a few years ago now, but not not all that long ago. And um, it just came through, yeah, out of sheer rage. Uh, I, I think it was probably the first book of his that I'd read. I'd read essays and things um, in the London Review of Books or the New York Review of Books, places like that. Uh, he writes about a great range of, of topics. Um, yeah, jazz is one of his main sort of preoccupations, but photography. He's written a, a fantastic book called The Ongoing Moment uh, about photography. Um, so, yeah, I guess I just kind of read numerous things and, again, had had a, a friend basically tell me, you need to read out of sheer rage. You know, I think that's a book you'll really love and, mm-hmm. sure enough, they were right. Um, so, yeah, I kind of then went to But Beautiful because I'm really interested in um, in music writing. Um, at the time, you know, I was actually... That probably kind of coincided with when I started actu- actually really um, listening with any kind of diligence, I suppose, to, to jazz, you know, which is sort of one of those mediums which... Um, people just, i still know people who you know like i'm 31 now and i know people who are just like i can't listen to jazz you know who are my age or older and there's like, i just can't do it like it's it's impenetrable and i'm like well it's not really all that difficult just find a couple of the classics and sit down and spend a little bit a bit of time with with them and um it's you know it's not that hard but it's mm. strange that you know it's this funny thing where i was like you know i've always kind of had a cursory interest in it but um have never really done it you know tried to actively teach myself about it so i, I read that um as a, a kind of a gateway I suppose into actually beginning to really explore this whole genre of music
4: It's a wonderful way into jazz because you don't have to actually even like jazz to sort of be completely won by this book and I was actually saying to you off oh air, uh, Jared, that I actually didn't know a lot of these characters and now I feel like I intimately know them or at least, you know, Dyer's very uh, wonderfully rendered version (laughs) of them. But particularly things like Thelonious Monk and uh, there's Bud Powell in here, which is a really moving sort of, you know, completely... Perhaps apocryphal mm. version of this very troubled character who suffered from mental illness um, that's been created that you really engage with. It's yeah. it is itself this kind of wonderful musical kind of a, a book. He's uh, he's played with words like you know, they play with music. So I actually, I found it particularly, I don't know, engaging. I don't think you need to be a jazz buff. I I
0: don't, don't. No, of course not. I mean, it's essentially, we should probably talk a little bit about the form of the book because it's kind of interesting. It's what essentially a series of kind of eight, I suppose, uh, like pen portraits, I suppose, kind of character studies of various um, of ja- various jazz musicians. But breaking each of these up is this great ongoing narrative of, um, of Duke Ellington um, and... Um, uh, Carney, his, um a musician and his driver, on their way to a, to a show. So they're just kind of going on this long night drive where Duke Ellington apparently famously, you know, would get a lot of his inspiration just on these long drives through the American, you know, streets of America, American countryside, all this kind of stuff at night. And he'd just kind of see something which would give him an idea for a melody and, you know, he sort of would compose a lot on the fly like this. So it's these beautiful little uh, intervals where you spend time with these two guys in a car late at night. And, um, you know, so they go off on a little yeah, they're off on their own little byway kind of uh, behind these other stories throughout the book and then you get these um, yeah, these great, great little character portraits of um yeah, of another, um, what, seven musicians, I suppose, um, throughout. So we've got, sorry, I'm flipping to the back here. Um, it's actually been about five months since I last read the book. But, um, uh, so Mel's m- much more on it than me today, actually, unfortunately. <laughs> i like, yeah, let's, let's talk about this thing. I, I haven't done my homework, though. But, um, <laughs> um, so, look, yeah, we've got Lester Young, Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell, which Mel's already mentioned, uh, Charles Mingus. Uh, that's one of my favourite parts in the book. Just because Mingus is such an enormous personality yes. and Dyer renders him so exquisitely, I think. Uh, I mean, his nickname was the angry man of jazz and uh, he was this huge imposing hulking kind of figure uh but a a, like a genius composer Uh, he was someone who actually would notate every note of one of his compositions as opposed to um you know a lot of a lot of jazz i suppose they it's improvisatory a lot of the you know and that's that's kind of what marks the medium i suppose but mingus was different is that he, he composed a lot more like a you know like an orchestral um composer like a classical composer i suppose um but he was just this huge rage you know he would beat up his um, his bandmates on stage if they screwed up and <laughs> things like that there's this amazing documentary um when he and his maid um, at the time when he and his daughter were being evicted from this apartment that they were, um, they were living in. And um, just, he's just sitting there with a gun and just, like, takes a pot shot at the ceiling and thinks it was a very volatile <laughs> entity. Um. But, and Dyer does, yeah.
4: He does, it because as he says himself in his, um, loosely, I'm going to call it sources. And in fact, I think it is called sources in the book. But some of the sources are, are things like apocryphal tales or, you know, documentaries that he's seen or books that he's read. Um, but one of the most wonderful things is that he says a lot of these characters were built from photographs. That's right. And I find that's, you know, that's really resonant because he does get their physicality, what you've just described. Um, very much is there, like he gets this idea of of monk of Thelonius Monk as this kind of hulking character that sometimes is so still. Yeah. He describes a an an image in a documentary where the only way you can tell it's film is because his <sighs> cigarette smoke is sort of wafting around, but he <laughs> might as well be a still photograph. Yeah. It's beautiful. Like really he's kind of seeing with he's hearing with his eyes is this kind of odd synesthesia thing going on in his writing. And I think I think that's what really makes it so compelling is it's not a music book that's written with the music it's written with a visual kind of pattern mm.
1: and, and is it non-fiction or is it a fiction
0: um it's sort of i think the way he puts it in the um in his preface is to say that he calls it it's imaginative criticism come fiction, mm. I suppose. And he, had, he kind of has this great caveat for letting himself off the hook for this entire project <laughs> of saying it's... Uh, and how does he phrase it? It's not as they were, but as they appear to me. So that's what he's writing about. So Did, did um, he
3: cop my, or any backlash or anything for, for rendering characters in this way? I mean, that, you know, in, in sort of including a caveat to, to what the project is, I suppose he does that. But um, there are raging debates around... Uh, historical fiction versus um, history itself, such as, you know, Kate Grenville's The Secret River, for example, is one that comes to mind. But it's, there is this battle between historians and uh, fiction writers about how to tell history and whether you can fictionalise accurately, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm sure he probably did from some very boring quarters, um, <laughs> to be honest. But to me, it's that kind of division. Werner Herzog always talks about it, right? It's like you've got the accountant's truth mm. or you've got the ecstatic truth. Yeah. And I think... If you've got a bit of both, you know, you kind of want a bit of both Mm. in in most things. Look, there's no, there's room for both approaches, I think. And (laughs) another thing, too, is that these are figures who have been so well documented and um, their lives have been chronicled, you know, like with, you know, kind of stenographic accuracy, Mm. if that's
4: the word.
0: Stenographers, I I don't know. (laughs) You know what I'm trying to say here, but. so I think there's plenty of room for someone to approach these these figures who, them, you know, who are like kind of these mythic entities, it's like Elvis, you know, or Johnny Cash and people like that. Um, you know, Nina Simone, like um, they they pop up in people's novels all the times. It's mm-hmm. kind of emblem, emblems for something else, and um, you know, in, in scenarios which they never actually lived in or never experienced. But I think. If, i don 't know I think it would be a yeah, pretty pretty sorry sod who would um, completely yeah. be against
3: <laughs> well, that it happens and, in the uh, film as well of course yeah exactly
0: and well uh, Mel mentioned earlier that how this is sort of um, you know one analog that you can um, to draw with this is the um, Todd Haynes film about Dylan i 'm not there mm-hmm. and yeah, um, now there's uh, Don Cheadle has made the the Miles Davis film, which is essentially the same kind of thing um, it 's his kind of imagining of. Of the fig, like the character of Miles Davis, the music of Miles Davis, but it's not a biography. Um, there's a lot of invention that apparently happens in that film. So,
4: I feel like as well because of the subject matter of this book, it's totally okay to indulge my kind of need to talk about the technicalities of the execution of the writing Definitely. of the book and I think that in it um Dyer's really playing with all the writerly tools he slips between the first person and the third person and even the second person and there's one particular sort of bit where he really does own his process and of course you've talked about Dyer always kind of bringing himself into his writing he's fairly absent in this he book really is. It's- but there is one part where he does appear, and that's uh, that's the bit where he's trying to render Bud Powell, who he's is obviously a subject that he's he's found very difficult uh, to get into. So at first and for the most part, he starts talking to this fictitious Bud, and I hope you don't mind if I read a tiny bit.
0: please do.
4: He says, "I'm sitting in this apartment on Third Street, Bud, trying to reach you through your music." And I just kind of think he sort of goes in and then trails through. He says, For everyone else, press and Mingus and Monk, the music is always a trail. I follow it and always eventually it leads me to them, brings me close enough so that I can see them move, hear them speak. With you, it's different. Your music encloses you, seals you off from me. Mm. And he then kind of gets to him through photographs. And then there's a tiny bit of documentary sort of evidence about uh, this horrible situation where... And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of conjecture that Bud's later mental illness has been derived from the fact that he was brutally beaten Mm. by police police. with a nightstick and had uh, brain damage. And so he he slips back into the third person to describe that he's kind of describing a documentary scene in a sense so it's sort of amazing how he's done that he's giving you little clues about where these pieces have come from almost like you know if you were playing a piece of jazz you'd go oh i know that i know that that little
0: yeah and jazz musicians famously quote each other you know throughout their work and um you know whether or not an audience member is uh, actually attuned to that and picks up on it uh, has entirely is entirely defined by their relationship with the music itself you know you can listen to it as a complete nincompoop initiate uh, and admire a, a beautiful piece of music or you can listen to it as someone who's an incredible boffin and be like that's, that's
4: But he's megas. given you these little key changes Parker, you know, exactly and, yeah. <clears throat> little key changes sort of in a way with the the changes in the person to say now i'm using a different source and yeah. i sort of loved that about it and it made me go back and reread it so that i could be a total word nerd <laughs> <laughs> You're, you've kind of looked at this book, um, and Jared, also
1: because you're considering writing a uh, work of wonderful.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not considering. I'm actually. You are in the middle. I'm midst contractually old. obliged <laughs> now <laughs> to, uh, to write. To write so a you're
1: book. right. You, 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 um, you're writing on Roland S. Howard. Tell us about yeah, that project. That's
0: right. Um, yeah, it feels kind of a bit um, cut before the horse to be talking about it at this point, to be honest. But I did um, uh, get approached by a publisher uh, Echo Publishing, the great folks there. Um, uh, at the end of last year about the possibility of, of writing something about Roland Howard, who's a you know a musician who I've, I've loved since I was a teenager, really, um, through The Birthday Party, These Immortal Souls, his, his solo albums, and all the other kind of collaborative stuff um, that he's done over the years, um, which I came to, I suppose, a bit later more as an adult. But um, those were definitely big bands for me when I was growing up. So it was, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting just um, wondering, you know, f- f- firstly, I suppose, I've never written a book before, I've never attempted to write a book before uh, and since it wasn't a project which I conceived of myself as well there was a bit of arming and ahhing uh, uh, well, there, was a, there was a great, great deal of arming and ahhing about great many things but f- fell among that for me was sort of like do i can i even do this how can i do this do i want to do this and then followed by is it even my place to do this surely there'd be a million other people who'd be more better place to write about roland howard than i am etc 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 um but um yeah how how to do that without um i suppose look i think there are obviously fantastic books uh like Biographies or books which consider, you know, kind of, um, critical biographies, I suppose, about musicians and their work. Um, there's, there's a, a pile of them, of course. Um, but so many of them, I guess, do just seem, compared to the subjects and the, the work that they're talking about, it just seems so kind of stayed as well, whereas it is just so-and-so was born here and rah, 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 and you get to the middle of the book and there's, you know, the the colour insert of the photographs of their first, like, their high school yearbook or something and blah, 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 blah and then them throwing up on stage somewhere and then them with their first, like, ex-husband you know, or something, whatever, and it's just, so I'm like, I can't do a book like For that. you do I don't have think. chops and, in
4: this direction. <laughs> I mean, the reason that you were asked to write this was because you've written a best australian essay uh, on nick cave uh, your essay that was uh, first appeared in island magazine yeah um and it, perhaps even if you could describe that from the people because you did approach it in a way that that was the nick cave yeah absolutely yeah, that um... was that sort of gives me a sense that obviously a publisher has approached you because they've gone i like this voice and i, I want to see where it takes um you know another subject particularly from that period
0: yeah which, of course, is just like stupidly flattering, really, as well. Like um, It's very hard not to feel like a complete fraud in a situation like that, because even the Ireland thing was just completely good luck, I suppose. Um, apparently, um, Matthew Lamb, who was then the the editor for Ireland, had had this idea for ages that he wanted to get someone to approach Nick Cave as a, a literary figure, I suppose, and had been casting about asking for people. And just for some reason, my name had come up a few times. I guess probably because... I don't know. I, like, I work at readings in St Kilda on Ackland Street... Um, and I suppose often play music, you know, (laughs) the Bad Seeds, Roland Howard, all that kind of stuff, just in the shop and often I've met so many great customers, befriended a great many of them now, like I'm just through kind of connections to that music because so many people from that scene and that initial kind of explosion of, um, you know, the the St Kilda post-punk thing um, are are still there, you know, and still doing great, interesting things. So I guess a lot of it was just kind of chatting and getting to know people. So for whatever reason, a few people mentioned that maybe he should get in touch with me so he emailed me out of the blue and sort of said oh hi look i want to do this thing with nick cave your name's come up i don't know who you are but hey like give it a crack if you want and i was like okay great that sounds fun um and so i suppose with respect to nick's work there are a lot of things where i was like oh no one really talks about this or no one really writes about how funny he actually is like there's a, a you know, he's a pretty loaded figure, particularly in Melbourne as well. I'm not a native Melburnian either. I grew up on the south coast of New South Wales. You know, and came to all this music, like listening to Triple J, uh, as a, you know, as a as a kid. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose maybe I've got a different slant on some of it than that. Anyway, but blah, blah, blah. So that was basically... It was kind of a fun... I hope that that essay's kind of fun to read anyway. It's great because, um, <laughs> you know... I don't, you... I don't really know. It was so long ago that I wrote it now, actually, almost two years. So.
4: <laughs> You're really looking at uh, Nick Cave as a writer uh, and as a literary figure, if you like. So um, that's a kind of...
0: And hopefully a bit playfully, like um, I think so. so that, yeah, you're playing know, with like... the
4: language as well <laughs> while doing it, and using that kind of um, hyperverbalism or verbiosity. Mm. To, and you know, words in the, there are words in that essay, Jared, that I'm I'm not sure that I've ever heard of before, or will ever hear again. Well, if
0: you read And the Ass or the Angel*, you'll encounter <laughs> many of them. That is, uh, yes. But uh, <laughs>
4: I did start that. I have to say, I never. finished And then you ever. find
0: you're reading more of the thesaurus or the dictionary <laughs> than the actual right. book. But, uh, <laughs> but for people like. Rowan S. Howard and, and
3: particularly Nick Cave, I mean, their lives have been poured over by a lot of people and, and I suppose now with, you know, the internet exploding, yeah. um, you can find that sort of biographical information quite easily whereas, yeah. you know, years ago, biographies would have served that sort of purpose That's and not and r- bolts exactly. of people's lives whereas now I suppose there's more... License is there to, to take it in an interesting direction and, and come from a more interesting angle, perhaps.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a really really great point. Is the the way that the internet has kind of um, stepped in to fulfil that role um, for a that's lot true. of people. But I suppose with respect to, I mean, of course, Nick Cave, so much has been written about him, but Roland Howard far less so. Um, well, uh, yeah. It's um, you know, and that's that's what's interesting to me too. There's auto luminescent, of course, the the documentary film by Richard Lowenstein, which is great. Uh, and what really sets that apart, I suppose, is the living presence of Roland Howard himself, who you know, filming was quite well underway before he died. So there's a lot of you know some of the you know the last interviews that he ever gave and, and things are in that film which is, is really beautiful mm. um but you know that's a great primer to him and in, in all of his kind of singularity as a, a person and a musician i think but um there's still a lot of room to this is you know something i sort of had to consider and it's like what well, what what can be said that that didn't already say and then i'm like well actually quite a lot you know particularly with respect to these immortal souls you know there's um there it's kind of amazing how many um you know i Again, I just wind up talking about this kind of stuff a lot with people in the bookshop, but um, how people who adore his two solo albums, Roland Howard's two solo albums, Teenage Snuff Film and, and Pop Crimes, uh, love the birthday party, but then it just kind of like, oh, I never really listened to, you know, the, what he did in that period. Mm. Then he was in this other band, Crime and the City Solution as a guitarist and did a bunch of collaborations, but then These Immortal Souls was this band where he really took his kind of rightful place as, as frontman and, um, you know, kind of key creative figure of that band, and it's, it's this fantastic... And there's a lot of there's a r- r- interesting story there too so that's a that's a big part of what the appeal of it is to me is to um to investigate this stuff which again I've, I've loved the music for ages but to be able to dig a lot deeper around that you know and
1: where do you go to dig
0: um yeah well i'm only just at the point i suppose where i'm you know re- beginning to reach out to people now that i feel like okay i'm doing this and i i'm getting over the, that feeling of imposter syndrome, which I've mentioned. Yeah, not fully um, you know, No, of course, I've um, i got I think I you can kind tell of need that, I right? think, <laughs> Yeah, well,
1: you do, I think. But I think it's that, um, that thing least, where so. you sort of struggle with yeah. struggle with the medium a bit, to mind the cliche, but you I mean, you need to, don't you, to, to do a good job is to kind of go, well, I know nothing.
0: And that's right. Therefore, you need to I like I the, must the dilettante, look- you know, the interloper. I, I do at least as well. I suppose this is something why Jeff Dyer often talks about this, he himself, you know, like so I guess that's why he's a figure who I've really Really kind of gravitated towards as a writer to um, you know um, that's a big part of, of his voice and his project too. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just I am I know you know I'm terrible at studying. Like I've tried to go back to study a couple of times as an adult to um, for the tertiary education. I always just get to the point where I'm just like I just can't do this because there's not enough room. I, I actually went back and did an honours in film studies. This is really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I did it over two years part time. So I did all the coursework in the first year, which was fantastic and I loved it. And I blitzed that, and that was. Great. then the next year i had to write a thesis and i really didn't want to have to write a friggin' thesis um and so i wrote something that was thesis length and it was not at all an academic thesis and on the day that it was due i just decided that i wasn't going to hand it in so i didn't and i just like <laughs> failed and walked away from that after you know whereas i'm just like if i had made this decision 12 months ago i would have saved myself a hell of a lot of stress um so and that's kind of indicative of, not that I'm going to do that with this book, this is great, so I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book, uh, the book will get written, the book will be really, really good, hopefully. But, um, but, <laughs> but
4: there's so many is... ways into it, aren't there, with this stuff, I mean, it doesn't, I feel I feel like you might need a pause there for yeah, a yeah. just to consider this, if there is going to be a book, I mean, the essay that you've done <laughs> is... Um, Is such a fantastic example of that because you can go into it the way that you want to go into it. Mm. It doesn't have to be a thesis. And what I love about, um, you know, the subject matter that you're looking at, you know, an artist who is dead, but the people who love him are still around. Um, The way into it could be through them or through, you know, the other musicians that were around at the time. Um, Sometimes you can colour someone more by their absence than by their presence. Certainly. That's what I find so interesting about this, because will it be about Howard or will it be about, you know, the milieu he was a part of or still is a part of?
0: Yeah, very, very much still is a part of that. I mean... I moved into the Robe Street in St Kilda, and um, there's a, a piece of stencil art of his face on that street. You know, so it was this kind of spooky thing. Where after having moved in there for a month or two, I was approached by the publisher with this idea, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird, and you know. <laughs> and um, but one thing which I'm, which is really interesting to me about him too is that. Um, the amount of people who've told me working in in that shop on Ackland Street, you know, and Ackland Street has of course gone through so much change, gentrification, et cetera, et cetera, um, since what the late '70s, early '80s, when um, it was kind of you know when the Crystal Ballroom um, was on um, was a big hub in Saint Kilda for that kind of alternative culture. But um, one thing which has come up through all these people who I don't know even know each other, but will just come into the shop, and if a Roland Howard song is playing various people have said to me over the 6 years that I've worked in that bookshop you know I really think that the old St Kilda died with Roland Howard's passing and that to me is fascinating like that and and there was also Cafe Scheherazade. people kind of tie those two things to their mind with the kind of the death of the you know of a particular cultural moment you know years and years after it happened but to them they're the kind of they were two big kind of watersheds of okay, this is kind of now gone almost irretrievably, in, uh, it seems, to, in the minds of some people. So that, to me, is incredibly fascinating, the way that a single person can kind of imprint themselves on a community to a certain extent, um, even, I suppose, amongst people who didn't know him personally or whatever, just by sheer virtue of his presence um, and what he did. You know, So that's that's a really beautiful thing, I think. That's a really lovely thing, and that's a really interesting thing for a writer to, to consider too. Uh, you know, so yeah, that'll hopefully find its way into the the book somehow, but um, yeah, as I say, it's still just kind of lots of I've just been doing lots of swatting up on the historical moment, things like that, etc. I'm beginning to dip into an archive at the Performing Arts Centre, which has a lot of amazing stuff um, from way back in the birthday party, boys next door kind of days, things like that. But um,
4: And I know we talked a little bit about um, the fact that many Triple R listeners may be people that you're hoping yeah. to get in touch with. So, is Hopefully there, a-
0: there aren't too many of them out there banging for my blood. <laughs> They're like, who is this idiot? Um, but
4: <laughs> Is there a way of getting in touch with you if there are people that, um, you yeah. know, should, we, should they perhaps call into the station and, and leave a message? Oh, Look, I've, I've
0: actually got a little um, a little email address for that express purpose. I mean, anyone, people who I'm I'm going to be seeking out. Obviously, I'll be contacting from my personal email address and things like that. But um, someone did suggest to me it might be a good idea to get a sort of bespoke little Gmail account for that. So the working title for the book at the moment is something flammable which comes from um a these immortal souls lyric of his and so the email address i've started is just something flammable book because some jerk had something flammable at com, <laughs> something flammable book at gmail.com uh if anyone would like to kind of be involved somehow because i think that oral history is going to be such a huge a huge part of it and to me that's a great uh, um a, a real draw for the mm-hmm. for working on something like this too aside from my Passion for, for him and his music. Um, so, yeah, it's something flammable book, all one word, at gmail.com. So, if um, you
1: want to set um, <laughs> Jared some homework, that's where you go. I would love to talk to any <laughs> and everyone. Um, and Jared Elson, um, writing a book, researching at the moment. Roland S. Howard is the subject of that book. And uh, and thanks for coming in and also um, bringing Jeff Dyer's But Beautiful, a book about jazz with you as well. And uh, Mel Cronenberg, thank you very much. A pleasure. As well. as and, um, and Mel will be back in about a month's time in the reading room to talk all things books and reading and writing with us. Um, You're tuned to Triple R.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au